it's been having very diversified supply chains that have kept us going through this. I think a lot of people were expecting, because don't forget, China shut down it's basically its entire manufacturing capability for weeks on end. And I think a lot of people were expecting to see some real supply crunch coming off the back of that. And we didn't really, or not to my knowledge, certainly not in terms of food supply, where the supermarkets, you know, basically the private sector in this country took us through the crisis. Welcome to The Print Factory, the Gathers with Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash and I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. This week we're joined by Ali Renison, the Head of EU and Trade Policy at the Institute of Directors, and Victoria Houston, the Head of Regulatory Affairs at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Today we'll be discussing COVID-19 globalisation, trade with China, and the UK deals with the EU and beyond. So, so Ali, I see your tweets about living lockdown out with uh, your partner's son in Scotland. What's it been like transferring out of the, the rustle and bustle of London? Um, I mean, it's interesting because I, I I did actually used to sort of commute. Um, so I was sort of in a working from home remotely situation. Um, and now it's sort of shifted to, to, to full time. I think the biggest issue for me, actually, because it's been quite nice having a quiet rural place with semi-okay, usually reliable Wi-Fi. The only thing I really actually now realize I miss and I didn't have before in this country, but I will be getting is a driver's license because being reliant on someone else has been probably the most frustrating part of lockdown. It's not like you're in London and I can just nip up to the shop. So the minute that the Scottish government gets its act in gear and allows people to sit driving tests and take their lessons, and I have a convertible, so I'm quite happy to, the better. Yeah, I think my parents were right to force me into getting a driver's license, even though I have absolutely no use for it in London whatsoever. Uh, so the first time ever, we're actually recording something in person. So Victoria's sitting across from me because of uh, technical issues, and she happens to live about 100 metres away from me in London. Um, are you excited to be eating out to help out, though, Victoria, shortly in our area, supporting our local small business? Well, I am very excited and fully intend to make the most of it. I, I do think, though around here where Matthew and I live in quite a bustling corner of southwest London. Actually the restaurants, bars and cafes have been pretty busy and uh, I'm sure we'll get onto this later but it's one of those policies uh, or giveaways where you wonder really how much difference it's going to make for people who were already going to eat out anyway especially in more affluent parts. Victoria, we never get anything back from government though. So <laughs> although I think it is a terrible policy, I'm going to make the most of it. Absolutely. Um, so that the popular broad narrative around COVID-19 and globalisation is that we're now at the end of an era, that what we've seen is how a virus could spread as a result of globalised movement of people, but also the weakness of, of supply chains with issues like personal protective equipment, production delays, empty supermarket shelves. But I just want to go back to basics. What do people really tend to mean when they talk about globalisation? And then what do they mean is going to suddenly change as a result of COVID? I think it depends on who you're talking to. I mean, if you are a if you are a critic of globalization, you see it as the erosion of the nation state necessarily. You see that it's too too focused on somehow, um, you know, that that your exposure to trade is a bad thing. I mean, if you think if you certainly see as I do globalization as one of the um, most incredible developments over the 20th century in particular, 
um, then you see it, you know, I don't think it's creaking at the seams. For me, globalization means that it's easier, that, that geography doesn't have to be the only thing that matters anymore. Um, and I think that, that it's interesting the way that you set that up against uh, the backdrop of the Brexit narrative, because very often I feel like we get pulled because people get into these polarized debates of saying it's either all geography or geography is irrelevant. And it's obviously for, for, for some things, it's still quite important. But I think for me, globalization means that, you know, the, your, your physical footprint stop being, stops being the kind of um, drawback to, uh, to economic progress and prosperity that it used to be. Um, and I do think that we're seeing some of that, uh, you know, I wouldn't say in doubt or in retreat necessarily, but I think that there's been a kind of temporary wobble. And the question is how temporary is temporary? So, you know, is the resurgence of um, some aspects of regionalism that we're seeing as a response, whether it's Australia and New Zealand effectively only probably going to open to up to each other first, or I think the travel aspect has really sort of driven forward that kind of um, resurgence of regionalism. But is that necessarily a an, uh, the, the opposite or, or um, something to be bemoaned is, or is it something that is a supplement to globalization? You know, I, I think interestingly a way, in a way that that sort of tentative reopening back up of, of borders, at least for travel, um, goods trade and services trade is, is carried on actually okay, but it's, it's linked to some of the lockdowns in other countries. So it'll be interesting to see whether that kind of tentative reopening of um, borders actually is the first step back to uh, um, uh reminding people that actually that as an idea that globalization is is not simply limited to um, your physical ability to move about. Yeah, of course, this opposition to globalization is nothing new. Uh, historically, we saw the huge protests in Seattle around um, the World Trade Organization meetings. Uh, in recent history, we've seen more on the right, the Trumpian national populist communitarian critique about job losses. Uh, on the left these days, it tends to be a bit more of an environmental critique. Is there anything new to this opposition to globalization? What what new f- kind of way is it taking on Victoria? Do you see a new narrative as opposed to something different in the past? Yeah, I think I, I think I do in some ways. I guess separately from the COVID nineteen factor, although what was interesting certainly in the early stages of the pandemic was that it did seem like it was. In, in many ways, certainly when it hit Europe, that it was a disease of the global elite, right? So it was people mm. coming back from ski holidays and international business conferences and politicians and pop stars who were seemed to be coming down with it first because obviously they were associating with people who had been in the hotspots. There was also that there was that fascinating lack of willingness to close borders, particularly in Europe to begin with. And when particularly Australia and New Zealand responded by uh, delaying all travel from anyone who'd been in China in the last 14 days, that was strongly opposed as xenophobic, um, which potentially was one of the reasons why it spread around Europe was because of that opposition to early border closures that might have actually done some good in retrospect. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. But also, I think in the case of this country in the UK specifically, I think I've read that most of our infections could be traced back to France. Exactly, yeah. Uh, or Spain or, or Italy. Yeah. Not not just through the, the elite skiers, but, you know, lot, British people travel a lot between yeah. Spain and, and home. And so arguably the calls to close the borders to um, flights from China wouldn't actually have worked for us at that time. And I don't think there was anyone calling for us to stop people coming into this country from Spain or France. 
well, potentially not. Uh, it seems like a retrospective. Time. If, if Europe had stronger borders on China to begin with, potentially yeah. could have stopped the virus coming to Europe. And then if the UK, it's all with the power of retrospect. I think the other element, though, when it comes to globalization, of course, is talking about supply chains, the sense in which we've seen this vulnerability mm. in global trade, yeah. that the whole system has been undermined. So do we buy that as, as a narrative? This seems to be a very prominent one when we people think about personal protective equipment or production delays or empty supermarket shelves. Have, have we seen a weakness of supply chains being shown by this crisis? I don't think, I mean, it's interesting, the, the, there's a technical, there's a, there's a trade answer, and then there's a political answer, because unfortunately, the latter tends to affect the former. Um, I mean, so we, we, we polled our members about, what, uh, three or four weeks ago, and we asked about the impact of the pandemic on our exports and the imports. And about half, about half of um, our exporters, and, and we have a fairly internationally oriented membership, I mean, something like upwards of 50% of our members are engaged in international trade, although I sometimes think that depends on how you ask a question, because sometimes Sometimes uh, people who are engaged in services trade don't actually know that they're exporting. So sometimes it depends on how you ask the question. But about half of the exporters have seen a negative impact, a decrease in their exports, although the majority of them, about three quarters, expected it to uh, to bounce back. I mean, I think in terms of the, if we're going to talk about supply chains, which which is not limited to, but is predominantly focused on the movement of, of goods in particular, I, I'd say that for a lot of services traders, the they have adapted, but the difficulty of you know trying to land a business deal has definitely become a little bit more difficult without having face-to-face interaction because that's something that's very cultural in some markets and very very important. But in terms of the impact on supply chains, you know, um, I think the biggest the biggest impact that I keep hearing about actually is air freight costs. Um, less so actually export controls and export restrictions that the EU may have authorized member states to put in. Um, the, the shutdown in China definitely impacted on a certain extent. But for example, you know, we have twice as many members importing from the EU as we do from China. So um, I think the impact there, the in a way, maybe the the depending on how you look at it, the dependence, reliance, a high proportion of trade that we do with the EU has maybe... I don't want to say insulated us because there's definitely still people who do a lot of trade with China. But, you know, compared to the U.S. where there's a lot of domestic production, um, a lot of the supply chains are domestic entirely. And, you know, outbreaks there in in factories, in um, meat processing plants, you know, when you have one outbreak there, everything shuts down for a bit. And and deep cleaning is not cheap either for these, these companies. Um, whereas for us, I mean, it's interesting about, you know, Yes, the, the lockdowns in Europe has affected the ability to, and in the UK, um, to carry on as before. But I think that people have actually adjusted fairly, fairly well, and that supply chains, generally speaking, um, the, the UK is in particular are fairly tight um, uh, supply chains. They've, they've responded really, really fairly well, um, all things considered. It, it is just generally quite hard to identify uh, actually running out of certain goods. There was that short period in March when people were mm. buying substantially more at supermarkets than they usually would, uh, and we saw empty shelves, but those quite rapidly came back. Uh, and we haven't really seen that huge failure of globalisation in practice, but despite the political rhetoric behind it. Yeah, I think actually quite the reverse. It's been having very diversified supply chains that have kept us going through this. I think a lot of people were expecting... Because don't forget, China shut down its basically its entire manufacturing capability for weeks on end. And I think a lot of people were expecting to see some real supply crunch coming off the back of that. And we didn't really, or not to my knowledge, certainly not in terms of food supply, where the supermarkets, you know, basically the pri- private sector in this country took us 
through yeah. the crisis with um, amazing success considering um, if you look however at the aspects of procurement that the public sector was responsible for um, thinking in particular of PPE although I'm sure you could probably include um, diagnostic testing in that as well to a certain extent then that hasn't gone so well and but then is that because of globalization you know people are saying oh we shouldn't be so dependent on sourcing PPE and paracetamol from China but actually if you go back to the early stages of the pandemic when Public Health England was trying to invoke its emergency plan and it called off its emergency order from its PPE supplier which was in France it was actually the French government who intervened and requisitioned the supply so far from our global partners in far-flung, distant supply chains um, falling apart. It was actually our closest neighbour in, in the single market who, you know, locked down the borders and called an end to free trade, which yeah. was somewhat disappointing. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like the, the failure on PPE, although it can also be exaggerated since there aren't strong cases of actual hospitals actually running out of PPE, but in terms of the difficulty in, in supplying it, that was going to happen inevitably in some ways because of the huge sudden demand. It's not about where the supply chains are necessarily, but the fact yeah. that it just take time, exactly. takes time to increase production. But the more diversified your supply chains are, the more places you can trade with. The fact that we could seek um, and to source PPE from all over the world actually increased the potential um, security of the supply through the diversity. I think that's a broader lesson for companies that maybe they don't want to necessarily be reliant on one particular supplier for one particular location for goods, but want to have a good diversity to have that security. Is that what you're hearing from your members, Ali? Yeah. So interestingly, I mean, and I, and I think that sort of touches on that kind of interface between public and private. So from a, a purely personal example, when everyone was sort of, there was still chat about whether we were going to have um, antibody-based immunity passports and whatnot. Um, and everyone wanted to check whether they'd had their their antibodies and everyone wanted to get COVID at that point in time, supposedly to sort of have it and get over it, except for it hasn't quite worked like that for a lot of people. I found up a lab, um, a, a sort of a, a business sort of a lab laboratory in, in another part of the UK. And I asked about it. And the first thing they said to me was are you based in the uk are you outside and i said no 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 i'm, I'm, I'm domestic and they said okay because we can't export this um this test uh outside um to I, I don't know whether they said it was specifically because of a, a government or or um, some other kind of pressure but but i asked them sort of briefly about you know the procurement side of it and i said well what, what's going on here? I mean, are you are you able to sell more to the domestic? And they said, not necessarily, because the procurement is managed so much centrally, and it's not particularly going very well. You know, you, you worry that you end up having this, um, uh, Victoria talked about the fact that, that some of the, I wouldn't call it, I don't think necessarily borders were closing, not not that she said that, but I think sometimes that's the impression that you get from some people uh, on, on a sweeping basis. And, and the EU did, um, Pass and they've extended this. Uh, it certainly shook my my faith in the single market a little bit. Although you see countries doing it everywhere, and it's supposed to be temporary. Um, the EU authorizing the ability of member states to put on export restrictions, not only um, uh, externally but but against each other as well. Uh, I think the impact hasn't actually been that. It was sort of a big uh, symbolic thing. You see lots of countries doing governments doing symbolic things, and but interestingly, that even if they had made a big impact, these export curves, these export restrictions, and we've done actually a fair bit of them ourselves around the power. Parallel, the ban on parallel export of pharmaceuticals. Victoria mentioned um, paracetamol, uh, remsvidir, for example, some of these kind of things that have been added to it. The minute that um, I think the Oxford trials sort of uh, had their 
um, uh, game-changing results released in the last couple of weeks on on um, that that name I've now blanked on. Um, Dai... Dixon Matsuhiro or something. Yeah. There you go. Um, that uh, that was added to the list right away. And so we've done our own fair share of that kind of stuff. I think sometimes that goes unnoticed. Um, but but really in terms of you know the ability to uh, put those export restrictions on, when you actually combine that with bad management of public procurement, particularly in a crisis setting, you know, the concern is that you end up having lots of products that because, you know, it's been either requisitioned or reserved. You also got some of this in terms of stuff that was meant to be going to Scotland was being reserved by PHE and that caused a crisis at a political level. And so those things become conflated very quickly. But there is a concern that, you know, regardless of the reason in a crisis setting, bad management and procurement at a centralized level ends up making, you know, you get as you have a situation where companies aren't able to export anything, but it doesn't actually go to any domestic central repository either. So what's the point? Right. And also the, uh, the input side of things, the European Commission and our own Department of, of Trade were very delighted with themselves for um, lifting import duties, tariffs on PPE, and also putting in place some facilitations for VAT on on those kinds of products. And you think, okay, well, that's nice and really helpful. But why on earth do we have import duties on PPE to begin with? Why don't we take this opportunity to just get rid of them? And and secondly, as I recall, they only lifted the import duties and the VAT when these things were being sourced by public health authorities. Exactly. So, and I actually haven't followed this recently, but I wonder if that's still the case now that mask wearing is mandatory in many countries in Europe, that, you know, that justification that they had presumably for preserving the supplies for health services has surely fallen away now. And there's, you know, why would we penalise people who are trying to buy mandatory protective equipment for themselves with import duties. Um, I hope it's not because we're now in an effort to try and stimulate production and support local production in this country. Um, That would be a disappointing development if the tariffs came back. Yeah, I think we often underappreciate some of the benefits from globalisation during even during this crisis and the fact that some of it's here inevitably to stay whether you like it or not in terms of the fact that we do need to import all those different goods be it test reagents or be it masks or or be it certain drugs um, and the, the the more we have access to big manufacturing bases that aren't necessarily in our own country below the world are quite good we also i think we fail to think about the extent to which we've shared medical knowledge across the world about how to how to tackle the virus and the extent to which medical researchers are just constantly working together or even i think we saw during the, the biggest cultural moment we had uh, during the virus, the, the George Floyd um, murder and the, the subsequent protests, that was also a very extraordinarily universal moment, a very globalised moment, despite the fact that it began in Minneapolis. And it's hard to imagine something as global, whatever you think of it. I, I think there's a lot of ways in which we're now extremely integrated uh, and extremely close together that, that simply aren't going away. Oh yeah, look. I mean, look at look at for example, just just to give an, uh, an illustration of that. On, I mean, there's a risk, obviously, that that people buy into truly quack stuff because it's so open source. But I've been really fascinated to. Um, look at all of the exchange well beyond regional borders um, between MDs and doctors on literally minute by minute kind of information on how they're treating their patients. It's just been, you know, if I didn't have so much work to do, that's all I would watch on Twitter. 
it is absolutely fascinating. I think let's like, just move on to perhaps the biggest current geostrategic and, and trade question, which comes down to trade with China. To, to go back a little bit, in 2001, China joined the World Trade Organization, uh, broadly on the expectation that trade could bring prosperity, but perhaps even with some now retrospectively naive hopes that China would democratize. Uh, but today, the extent of global interdependence on China has been questioned quite extensively, uh, both in terms of its economic impact, uh, but also in terms of its geostrategic impact and, and the kind of human rights implications of trading with China. I just want to start with it kind of thinking about how did we end up in a situation where people feel like the world economy is so dependent on China? Uh, is that, to what extent do we think that's true? Um, and, and to what extent is it perhaps too much, Ali? Um, that's, a, that's a meaty one. There's a three-part there. I mean, I think that some of it is, um, and, and I say this in no way at all to um, undermine the case for political robustness with Beijing over Hong Kong, but I think that because it's been bound up with that, the political, you know, the ability to have a sense of proportion, um, you know, it would be naive for me to even say it'd be nice to separate politics from the economics because we know that doesn't happen. But the UK has traversed a careful path on this relative to the US. Some think it's too careful. Some people think that, um, you know, the government went out of its way uh, on its sort of courting of um, uh, China from an economic the standpoint. The golden relationship, yeah. The, the golden relationship. But I mean, I remember when... Um, so, you know, it's, it's almost sort of politics in reverse, because I remember when George Osborne as chancellor, uh, I had put it in our quote as a response to our press release to the budget, he'd an, unveiled some funding for doubling um, uh, uh, funding for exporters to, to break into the Chinese market. And I think my response was, it's nice, but wh- why? You know, what it, it was almost sort of we'd, we'd, we'd done the politics in reverse. We'd gone out of our way, not only to um, economically lift the red carpet for, for China, but I think it sometimes crossed into the political kind of we, we uh, the British are very good at being diplomatic and sometimes some people might think I think the Brits were almost too diplomatic over some of the political um, aspects of that relationship but you know we now have sort of flipped the scales where because there is all this quite genuine um, outrage over the basic security law and how it is things are working at a political level um, any sense of it's almost like we flipped the switch and we now think that anything not sort of you know it's interesting to sort of look at social media and, you know, anything that passes through China is a problem um, because, because obviously there is that concern and it really depends on the sector that you're operating it in to what extent your interface is with the, you know, the CCP. Just to, just to go back one second, Victoria, if we, we think about the, the debate before the, the current moment where people are, I suppose, talking more on strategic and human rights concerns, the, the first concerns that have really been raised about China is this idea of the China shock. And there was some research that was done showing that particular uh, American cities and regions that were hit hard by outsourcing have never really recovered. And therefore, it's a net negative to to trade with China. And this kind of more protectionist narrative that we need to secure our own manufacturing, and we shouldn't allow that overseas uh, in the kind of Trump trade war world. Uh, What's your your view on that? Are we going to suddenly see a reverse of that? Uh, Was that a good or a bad thing to begin with as well? Well, I think you sort of alluded to it when you said there was a certain naivety of those days when China was brought into the WTO. And there was this, you, you mentioned that it would encourage them to democratize and adopt uh, 
global values, I suppose, and, and the, embrace the rules-based international order. And, and I think it's, I would certainly say that from that perspective, it clearly hasn't really worked from the perspective of managed trade, if you like, which I would contrast with free trade. Um, it, it hasn't worked. Trade with China is certainly freer, but the idea that we have been able to manage China towards adopting global norms um, associated with that, I don't think that's really worked out. And has that contributed to the, the China shock? Well, I think it's almost the fault of Western countries, uh, particularly the US and the UK, that we've let that happen. So I would always welcome free trade. And I would say, even if China hadn't joined the WTO, we should have been moving towards free free trade with them. There's a, there's a moral good. There's probably more than moral good with hundreds of millions of people being put out of poverty in China as a result of them building up their manufacturing yeah, capacity. But also- the good, the good that you get as an import, of course, right? lower Imports prices yeah. are good, and I'm mainly concerned about the, you know, the, the good of the British people, and I think the good of the British people is best served by free trade, and but the other angle of that is once you free up your trade with a powerhouse like China with a manufacturing capacity that you know. I can't even conceptualize in terms of the volumes and also with very low standards in terms of um, wages and, and, and regulations and environmental protections, then you have to acknowledge that your home producers are not going to be able to compete with that. And I think where we went wrong is, is that not only did we allow our national manufacturers to fail, but in many ways, we actually tied their hands behind their backs um, with tax policies and green policies, where we've essentially just exported our carbon footprint to China. I wouldn't. I, mean, I want to tackle this idea of the China shock, though, because it's it's in literature in America all over, um, and it's very often treated as gospel. And I think one of the biggest flaws with it is just fundamentally, um, it looks at a very singular impact. Effectively, looking at kind of uh, it doesn't take into account any of the benefits that were accrued to even consuming industries in the manufacturing sector, right? Um, mm-hmm. At all. And so the narrative around it tends to be, and I think that it is being exported to the UK from the US, particularly as we start to club together on on more political and foreign policy related issues, um, I think you see that sort of being exported in the sense here is sort of ignoring, um, is, is purely looking at it. And I don't think you've really seen that here. We have to remember that America um, is not really exposed to international trade the same way that the UK is. The history is very different. The supply chains are very domestic. Ours are fairly um, open and international. It's been, we're an island nation at the end of the day in the UK. Um, and so there's a reason that I think those, you know, that the China shock narrative um, in the US has become so prominent because I think that it's been a country that is not necessarily fundamentally exposed to international trade and embracing international trade the way our history has been. But even if you were to take that as, as sort of face value as a starting point, 
Um, you look at, I mean, I've seen several studies over the last 10 years, not only just in, you know, there's obviously things in China that, that come out, but even in the US that, that the consuming benefits, if you were just to look at goods trade for a minute, leaving aside the fact that, that we do have companies that have now um, uh, moved over to China. And I think there's a tendency to think that we've just sort of exported um uh, you know, cheap offshore manufacturing, although I do think that the concept, um, it's worse in America than here, but the concept of offshore manufacturing is a, is looked at with sort of a normative values, which it shouldn't be. But moving beyond that, you know, there's lots of service companies that are operating in China. Um, there are still concerns about, you know, international um, IP protection, both in goods and for services. But at the end of the day, you know, those, those benefits um, are rarely looked at in the calculations that, that accompany the, the China shock. You know, the costs around amplified and the benefits are ignored. Yeah, I, I think there was a, a recent study that tried to estimate what would it cost to insure the production of the iPhone in the United States, something that costs, let's say, around $1,000. And they estimated that it would, cost, it would increase the price back to $2,500 for an iPhone. In, in the end, it is the consumer that massively benefits from this trade. And, and even what were found during the Trump tariffs is that the, there's been huge losers in American producers who are mm. dependent on China for the production of a lot of parts. And of course, huge losses for American farmers who would export to China. So, so this kind of mutually beneficial situation of trading with China and um, when that is stopped, everyone is actually worse off in the end, aren't yeah. they? And, and can I add just one last thing to that briefly from a non-manufacturing standpoint, which is always interesting to look at from an agri-food perspective. If you look at whether, uh, particularly, I think, pork, um, but not limited to pork, you know, there are different parts of the world, and China is one of them, where different parts of the animal are are you know, big ticket items for human consumption. And the f- in fact, there's actually a lot of parts of, you know, um, livestock animals that are exported to China because there's a big market for it that just doesn't exist in the UK. So I, I do think sometimes that that kind of stuff gets lost in the ether and we want to kind of uh, unwind. And um, not only are we talking about unwinding reliance on China, we're actually talking about, you know, shaming any companies that do any kind of business, both either there or, um, uh, or in direct trade with them. So I'm a little bit worried about that kind of ability to distinguish and differentiate being lost amongst the political narrative because no one wants to, I, I'm, I feel myself personally very capable of with the one hand um, castigating Beijing's actions in Hong Kong um, and in Jiangjing, um, but at the, with, the, with the other, um, you know, remonstrating people who basically say that, you know, if that, that you're not patriotic if you're if you're doing business with China, simply because that the risk of doing any kind of interface implicitly or indirectly with the CCP remains there. And I think, you know, we have to be able to distinguish what is a, what is a genuine risk in that respect and 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 what is less so yeah i think that's i think that's completely right and i think a lot of the calls for major sanctions on china and for reshoring supply chains as a matter of national security are probably a bit misplaced because what we'll probably see is that firms will be looking at their exposure to what happened in china you know is there going to be another virus crisis is there a you know, a public opinion disadvantage to being invested in China. And I suspect firms will already be looking at moving out of China um, for, for lots of different purely commercial reasons that don't require the state to mandate them to do it. And then the other aspect, of course, is where it is genuinely a matter of national security, which with things like Huawei, where I must say, I do think the role of some senior grandees 
from you know the civil service and and business life who've thrown their lot in with Huawei uh, shilling for China is is a bit uncomfortable actually. The guy sitting in one of the parliamentary committees last week who was asked, um, I forget which MP asked him, but they said, do you feel that you're able to talk openly about China and about Hong Kong and Hong Kong security law? And this guy on the board of Huawei in the UK said, yes, yes, I can, I can talk openly about things. And so they said, okay, well, what do you think? about the Hong Kong security law. And he said, oh, I couldn't possibly comment. I'm a, I'm a telecoms guy. <laughs> and, and, and so I think, uh, yeah, I think I would definitely draw the distinction between commercial operators making good business decisions that could very well lead to them diversifying away from China and national security decisions. We already are seeing a lot of this, aren't we? Um, Apple's announced that they're going to move 20% of their production to India. Uh, we've already seen that Google is moving their production into to Vietnam in an old um, Nokia factory for the Pixel phone, as well as Samsung has entered all production in China. They've actually um, moved out and Sony's moved to Thailand. So it doesn't, it, it feels like even for natural economic reasons. It doesn't, it doesn't need the state to tell it what to do. You know, business is very good at figuring out where risks are and how to manage them. As long as they're given enough notice, <laughs> I won't bring up Brexit, but we could talk about that separately. We'll, talk, we'll get to um, Brexit in a moment. And right. enough information. No, I, I bring, I mean, I, I think the Huawei one bugs me a little bit because, um, you know, there was a, we were given chapter and verse before it sort of, you know, I wouldn't call it green lighted, but it was certainly wasn't banned. Um, it was, you know, that, that we were told that it was the, um, I don't know if it was the NSC, but that the security agencies in the UK had, uh, for lack of a better word, given it some kind of clearance. And so I'm, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the reasons um, for the vault fast, because the reason I bring that up is that from a, from a business perspective in particular, how, how do you operate in a market where you're not sure what the government's um, approaches this is this pure politics are there what kind of predictability do you have in that kind of market um, so I think in terms of it, particularly also a thing from a governance perspective and I do have to wear that hat in some respects because um, you know governance and, and corporate um, uh, the, the governance in particular of boards is a big one for, for us. It's in our it's in our royal charter. And so from a governance perspective, not only I think the companies do need to be making sure that they're doing their due diligence and assessing the risks properly, even if they're not um, directly linked into uh, uh, sectors that interface with the Chinese Communist Party, um, but also from a government perspective, you know, we'd like to see a little bit more consistency and clarity about how these decisions are being taken so that people don't have that kind of unpredictability of what's going to happen next in this. But, but but I think to your point, you know, actually businesses and companies are fairly good at working out those risks themselves. And the question then becomes linking back to what kind of industrial policy, if any, we know that's fairly important, I think, to this government is going to be. Um, companies are, are divesting of China themselves or diversifying themselves. The Japanese government was, um, I don't think it was a direct subsidy. I think there was some kind of financing scheme that was being given to basically try and encourage companies to um, uh, do their production lines elsewhere. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, but the companies will figure that out themselves. 
you know. Um, and, and the question then becomes, when we talk about needing to have, to what extent does relying, um, reducing dependence, not even just on China, but any on, on any one single source, we talk about, there's discussion about having national stockpiles of certain equipment, medical equipment. How are we going to do that? Are we going to do that through defensive tariffs and build up an industry? Or are we going to, you know, do it by attracting people to um, uh, do business in, in other jurisdictions? That's, that's a big question. I think the government is, I'd like to think that it's more minded to not go down the defensive tariffs to build up an industry to deal with China um, uh, dependence, but I'm not sure. Well, let's move on to the, the, the third thorny question of today, which is the EU and beyond. Uh, while the future of globalization is uncertain, Britain is partaking in an extraordinary project of decoupling from the European Union and seeking new trade opportunities. Uh, it's getting a bit less attention this year than last for obvious reasons, but we appear to be stuck in a, a deja vu with negotiations between the UK and the EU at an impasse. Um, I was wondering, Victoria, where are we currently at with our EU negotiations uh, and what, what is currently holding the back from a, a, the early deal that was hoped to be struck by July? Yeah, so we've had several rounds now and I think they're actually meeting in person now, not just by video link, which is probably helpful, I would say. And I think had, had the Prime Minister and David Frost set a deadline of July to have agreement in principle and have built confidence that the deal would be done by the end of the year. Otherwise, I think they were saying they would then proceed on the basis of no deal and instruct businesses to, to get on with their no deal preparations. However, after last week, they didn't actually reach a sort of agreement in principle, but David Frost said they would now give it until October, which is really pushing very close to the deadline, um, given that we're not extending. But we seem to still be in the same place where the EU is insisting on certain EU rules. Level playing field, Le I think level is the playing phrase field they're using, yeah. Continuing in force in the UK. Now, I was, uh, and the other major sticking point is, is fisheries, where the UK is, we're very much sticking to our guns, that we're not continuing some version of the common fisheries policy. Although it was also reported, and Ali's probably closely, more closely following this than me, but I gather it was reported that the EU or Michel Barnier has signaled that they will accept. So the, the third sticking point, there was three main sticking points, um, fish, as I've mentioned, level playing field, and the governance and role of the ECJ. And it was reported last week that Barnier had accepted that the ECJ would have no role in the arbitration and governance of the agreement. And while the UK has apparently also accepted that there will be a single a institutional single, framework single rather than framework. Switzerland, Switzerland style multiple agreements. Yeah. yeah, but I was pretty surprised by that because it's not really within Barnier's gift to say, oh, okay, we'll accept that the ECJ won't have a role if he's also continuing to insist that certain EU rules and regulations and standards are imported into the agreement, because as soon as you do that, the ECJ is going to 
assert its jurisdiction, whatever the um, negotiators have said. So I'm not getting too excited about that particular drawback, uh, breakthrough, just just yet. I mean, it was an interesting moment last week, I thought. Um, I because my head is so squarely focused on on preparation and what there is to prepare for, and we could probably spend a whole podcast on that, explaining what is and isn't clear at the moment and, and how that impacts on people's ability to prepare. Because we have to remember, um, uh, I'm pretty sure Victoria and I did an interview on this and might not have agreed with everything, that, that, that you know, that there's... It's a different type of set of no deal circumstances, um, not just because of the Irish protocol that's been appended to it, but, you know, it's a different the, the global tariff has changed. And, and um, the reason that's relevant and interesting is because, you know, in terms of what, where the UK gets to with rolling over or transitioning um, the EU agreements that it currently has through its through its membership or, or transition membership, I should say, um, is sort of linked to where the it was interesting. There's a, there's general. I don't think I'm giving anything away by by saying that there is general consensus that um, Canada is now much more interested in transitioning the EU deal that we have through it because the government's put up uh, its tariffs basically in the global tariff that replaced last year's temporary no deal tariff. So there's lots of games going on. There's lots of intersection with negotiations. Um, I feel really sorry, and I probably would say this, I feel really sorry for businesses who are desperately trying to struggle to stay afloat and being asked to prepare without really a lot of information to go on. So it depends on it depends on, you know, everyone thinks that business is sort of sometimes in the same space and they're really not. So the people who really kind of are on top of their trade management systems, um, you know, they really do this stuff for a living. Uh, they're sort of they don't really have anything else that they can do to prepare unless you have every piece of information going because they know what a commodity code is. They don't have to get training on that. They know what the VAT arrangements, you know, how the impact might change what they're, um, what they need to do for um, the information that's required to put on the, the documents that, that the company um, goods movements. But at the end of the day, if you do not have the actual, you know, whether it's the backups, the not backup, the um, the back end system, you know, we talk about, uh, I don't know if you get in that level of detail in some of these podcasts, but chief and CDS, basically the systems that underpin, you know, customs clearance entries, uh, because some of that is really still being negotiated with the EU. Northern Ireland is this weird thing, which I think has been the case for the last four years is the, the, the tail that wags the dog. And so the ability to tell uh, someone who is bringing in, for example, parts from um, both EU and non-EU, and sometimes if they're doing a very small piece of trade with outside of uh, countries outside of view, they really won't be ready to geared up to completely overhaul their management systems just because they do some bits of trade with non-EU countries. So we had an example of a guy who was bringing in um, parts for a, he was a middleman, a water company in Scotland, a public water utilities company, and then some of the parts were being sent on from, so bringing in from EU, non-EU, coming into to GB is being sent across Northern Ireland and then going down into the Republic. And so someone like that, um, because I think the uh, Irish protocol, I think involves a lot more companies in this kind of complexity now, whereas there weren't that many British companies involved in trade over the land border um, when that was a potential area for where the border controls were going to go. There's a lot more uncertainties now. And so I think it's... uh, I understand what Victoria is saying, and I, I agree in parts that, you know, it, that really is leaving it quite late to have a deal. But that tells me that I think that they want a deal and they know that that's going to be, you know, there's a big difference between having um, uh, tariffs or no tariffs. Except in many ways, not that much difference, right? Oh, but what if it's the smaller ones? You know, we, we talk about, you know, the fact that, uh, sorry, not the smaller ones, that, that, that you know, a lot of 
uh, agreements will get rid of I don't know, 90 to 95% of trade agreements, but they leave the massive ones. For sure. F- fiscally, it makes a difference whether you're paying the duty or not. But in terms of the formalities, you still have to fill in the forms. In fact, in many ways, the formalities are more complex. They are, but the formalities are not stationary because right now, and it's difficult for me to go into too much detail because some of this does deal with um, uh, sensitive government engagement meetings that we have on this stuff. But right now, for example, the movement system, um, no, you know, no, the the facilitations that you might be in looking at to Im- mitigate the impact of it, the forms are actually different. They're going to be different because of the Irish protocol. It makes things slightly more um, uh, unpredictable. So there are certain things that are bankable. There's definitely things that are banked. So preparing for making sure that you have a, a representative if you're in a heavily regulated industry like pharma and um uh, life sciences and chemicals. But at the moment, if you look at chemicals, we don't know, there's absolutely no real detail yet about what replaces the UK reach, the registration database system. And the last thing I'll say on that is that the the, the issue there is the data, the access to the data. And because we don't know what kind of data sharing arrangement the UK and the EU are going to have, it's really difficult not having that detail about how, you know, people don't know how to prepare for having a UK reach because there isn't information forthcoming yet. So there's limited amounts. It's not just about trading with the EU. It's about what consequences and what changes there are for your domestic regulatory infrastructure that we don't have the full information on yet. And I could say that for a range of different areas. Yeah, I think what worries me, though, is that I'm just looking at something that was in the Telegraph yesterday reporting on this whole situation. And it says, if no deal is agreed, the UK will trade with the EU on World Trade Organization terms, meaning goods will be subject to tariffs and customs checks. Now, obviously, we know that goods will be subject to tariffs and customs checks, even if we do agree a deal. And that kind of reporting after all this time, just it really annoys me. And I hear anecdotally quite frequently about companies, really quite sophisticated companies who are involved in import and export, who haven't quite or are only just starting to click that an FTA does not mean business as usual and you don't need to do any preparation. You know, there are, I, I still hear from colleagues in various consulting roles that that, that kind of story is happening. I, I think it's not just about the preparation, though. It's, it's or about whether you need to prepare. I mean, I wrote an article for our, our magazine in January being like, you guys, this time, paraphrasing, you guys, this time it's real. You guys really need to prepare. And there are always steps that people can do to take. But for a lot of companies right now, unless you are giving them, so a company does not live to exist to comply with the end of transition. It has a lot more going on just to struggle to stay afloat with COVID, particularly if they're trading internationally and you're trying to deal with making sure that, you know, product uh, gets delivered where it's supposed to be as close to one time as possible. If you don't know, for example, right now, if you don't have clarity over, um, you know, who's going to be responsible for checking the documents, is that going to be the carrier? Is that going to be the freight driver? Is that going to go? Where's the liability going to be traced back to? So those are all bun fights that are still happening. And if you don't know exactly, you know, you know that you have forms to fill in, but you don't know what the forms are going to be. That's actually the situation that, that we are finding ourselves in. So a lot of companies will say to me, very happy to prepare, but could you give us the full panoply of information? What's going to happen with VAT? I don't know. That's still being negotiated at the moment. Um, well, okay. 
they they will it's 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 funny how I think sometimes government thinks that business groups are a little bit of the issue here because I have had some very angry conversations from members who basically turn around and say to me, if you are not providing us with all the information, excuse me, we have to go deal with COVID. Come back to us when you have all the information in one fell swoop. And so that's how a lot of companies are thinking purely because they're so focused on trying to deal with COVID. I don't think there are a lot of companies who are in the space, there probably are a few, but in the space of having done nothing. But um, at the end of the day, I think that particularly right now, when you're bringing them incomplete information, because some of it's still being negotiated, it's one thing to say there's going to be checks and controls. It's another to say, and here is the document changes that you need to comply with. And we don't actually have that yet, because there are still some things that are being facilitated um, you know, around AEO and MRAs with AEO. And if we don't have that yet, that's a very different kettle of fish to being in a no-deal situation where there's no facilitations. But maybe there will be some, we don't know. But I think that's all completely right. And it is why uh, Frost and his teams set the aspiration of having agreement in principle in by July so that you would pretty much know well ahead of time, are you going to have a deal or not? And then you could say at the end of July to, to your business, look, we've tried, there's not going to be a deal. Let's now devote all of our attention and energy to making the absence of a deal work. And then at least you have that certainty. Obviously, they haven't been able to hold their nerve because I think we all know Boris Johnson is is a bit of a deal maker. He likes to be liked. So Did the art of the Boris's deal yeah. rather than Trump's. So so <laughs> clearly clearly they haven't held their nerve um, to, to actually act on that. Them fighting words, Victoria. That sounds like a challenge to the government. Just stepping back here a little bit in terms of uh, what I find interesting about Frost's statement was this idea that he, he's confident a deal will be reached. But then if you if you read Barnier's uh, subsequent press conference as well in, in combination, it seems like we have two very different visions of what each side wants to achieve. And it, this is under that level playing field category where the UK kind of is still going for that more or less, probably less kind of Canada-style deal, more of a free trade deal where the UK is free to set its own domestic policy. While the EU it continues to discuss how it's concerned about its regulatory autonomy, it thinks that if the UK is free to make its own policy under its own, um, let's say, state aid rules or uh, refuses enforcement mechanisms on things like climate, environment, labour and social law, that that could lead to, quote, distort competition. And so you've got this kind of EU obsession with fair competition, um, uh, which in, in some ways from at least a, a, a liberal Brexiteer perspective s- says to me, well, either the UK is going to have to compromise quite substantially in order to get that deal with the EU or the EU is going to have to compromise quite substantially on the other end and be, be less forceful in terms of its um, keeping its kind of regulatory systems or its red tape hold on the UK. W- which way do we... Do we see this working out? Is this going to be some kind of fudge in the end that, that's going to reach this deal? Or is it no deal? Is that where we're heading? I, it, it just seems to be really unclear what happens next. So I think the the issue with this whole state aid question is to me, as a, as a pro-free market person, it's completely through the looking glass because state aid is bad for an economy. And so we should... You know, we should be we should be avoiding giving out state aid, not because we are obliged to refrain from subsidies due to an international agreement. We should be refraining from subsidizing and bailing out companies because it's a bad thing to do for the economy as a whole. And 
And if the EU wants to subsidise and bail out its com- its um, its companies, then actually that's in in the in the longer term bad for the EU's economy. And this whole chess game about insisting that we each have restraints on our ability to subsidise it, it to me it's just through the looking glass and what makes me particularly worried is that it our government seems so keen to be given free reign to subsidize not as a matter of sovereignty which i would accept and i would accept that it's then a political matter as to whether they proceed with bad economic policy or not um, but it seems actually that they just want to be given free reign to actually enact bad economic policy. I think COVID's been the excuse, has become the excuse for a lot of things about this time it's different. And I think in some respects it's different. I think you will have, you know, you will have a lot of, I don't think the UK is probably going to be alone in that respect, although it is a, quite a vault fast from, from you know, the the expectations of this government that Victoria sort of set out um, uh, that, that I would have expected ideally as well. You never expected strictures around, um, if, if there was one thing that I never expected um, to be a really contentious issue. Now, it's somewhat of a contentious, contentious issue because the EU started out saying that the UK basically had to be banned into its regime on a dynamic basis, and, and I don't think they were ever going to get anywhere with that. But I never expected, under a Conservative government, um, that wanting to be able to go far and above any strictures, which are fairly normal in trade agreements, to have some kind of agreement, even if it's not to the EU's um, internal market type of approach, uh, some kind of strictures and some kind of, for lack of a phrase, level playing field around making sure that there's some kind of fair competition. And I never expected that from, from a conservative government. So it's been a bit of a shock to the system. To answer your question, um, <laughs> uh, Matt, um, I think even though this government is very, very different and has a massive majority, I would still like to think that a deal is fairly important to them because um, it's not just about whether trade becomes more complicated if there's no deal. And if you have a disruptive end to that, what does that do to the economic confidence for your wider recovery? And I think that that's probably in some of the government's minds. Well, unfortunately, I think we're running out of time there. But Victoria, do you want to have any kind of last thoughts on the, the chances of getting a deal? Yeah, I would agree with, with Ali's last comment there. I, I think there will be significant urgency on on both sides, actually, to get a deal done. And I would, you know, I would welcome that. I think having a free trade agreement with the EU is definitely better than not having one. But we're still back in the world of saying, yes, but not at any cost and not no deal, as the saying goes, is better than a bad deal. But I do think they will come to an agreement. My concern is, again, going back to Ali's previous comments, is that it might be so late down the line that it just makes it very difficult for businesses to prepare and implement what needs to be done. The ghost of Theresa May will always be before us. Uh, thank you very much, Ali Renison from uh, the Institute of Directors for all your fantastic insights and to Victoria Houston, who was the last one speaking there from the Institute of Economic Affairs for all hers. Um, this has been another episode of The Pin Factory. My name is Matthew Lush and I'm the head of research at the ASI. And I also wanted to thank Daniel Pryor, who has produced this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you.